in our Bibles this morning to John, the 20th chapter. Now, if you only came to church once a year and you were here on the first Sunday of 2011, you'd have gone, Jesus, the guy only have one sermon. Okay? Because that was the passage that we looked at at the beginning of 2011 as we started our study of the Gospel of John. And I thought it would be fitting to revisit this and we'll look at some different aspects of it. Because this is what we've been working on throughout the year, uh, last year, and what we will be in up until uh, up through Easter, and then we'll complete it. As, as you can see, um, starting next week, we'll skip a, a chapter or so because that's um, the Palm Sunday passages, and we'll get into the the week that uh, the Passion Week, and we'll deal with the ministry of Jesus uh, during that time. Then, when we get to Easter, we'll actually go back to uh, chapter 12, and then we'll also come up to 20 and 21 for the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So if you're able, will you stand with me? And then I'll read the word of God. Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege to come to your word, to know that that men wrote it. It is a work reflecting the history and the lives that were there, but to also know that the Holy Spirit inspired these men that the words they put down were the words that you wanted them to write and the words that were needed for that time, for our time, and for all time. So open our eyes to this that we might believe and have life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. This is where we studied, where we started last year. This is the purpose of the book John wrote these things that we might believe, and that with that belief, we might have life. Those two are inseparably tied together. And since that is is true from what John writes, uh, we can make the uh, assumption, always dangerous, but I think it is safe here, that if you do not believe, you will not have life, or non-belief equals death. If belief equals life, non-belief equals death death. And we are talking, we understand about spiritual life and spiritual death. If you walk out of here today not believing in the things of the gospel, it's not as if you'll get down to the bottom of the steps and the Lord will strike you dead and and you'll be dead dead. Now, a Methodist might run you down. Okay, I just want you to be ready for that. They're probably parking in the lot and they don't want us to know that, so they're seeking out just as fast as they can. Okay, no, not really. Um, But, you know, those things happen. But we are talking about belief. We're talking about this present life as well in its fullest form, as well as the life that the Lord gives us for all eternity. If you do not believe, you will never understand this life. You will never have this life to the fullest, and you will never understand why you were placed in this world for his purpose and his glory. You will never grasp that if you do not believe. 
For anyone who has received Christ as their Lord and Savior, we understand what it means to have life in his name or are in the process of understanding it. It is a lifelong process to grasp all of those things that the Lord has for us. Now, we understand that justification happens in an instant. It is a one-time event. You were an enemy of God. The Lord comes. He opens your eyes. You believe you are justified now for all eternity. You are his child. You belong to him. Your sins are forgiven. They are cleansed. They are washed. That's a one-time event. But it is that ongoing process of sanctification where we grow in our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he wants us to do. This is the process of understanding his grace in our lives. The process of understanding how we are to live these things out so that we might give him glory in all that we do. Some days we do it really well and some days we do it pretty poorly. Okay? But that is who we are as humans. The Lord has forgiven us, our sin has been cleansed, but there's enough sin that remains within us that we still have this struggle that goes on, and it will go on our entire lives. Now, we trust that as we grow and grow in our faith, and as we digest more of his word, and we put those those spiritual disciplines to work of studying his word, of praying, of worshiping together, of, of hearing the word preached, of singing those great things, that we will become more and more godly. That is our hope and our desire. Now, when we are forgiven, we are freed from the former things. We have the capacity to live godly lives. We have the capacity to live lives obediently to the Lord. Not that we will automatically, because there's, as I said, there's still enough sin hanging on to us, holding our pant leg. It's like the little dog. You walk into the house of your friend who has one of those little yappy dogs, and they get onto your pant leg, and you're walking, and you're just dragging them across the room, and they think, you know, they're trying to eat you. Uh, and, and, but that's the way sin is. It hangs on to us, and we can't sometimes get rid of it. Okay, we have the power to overcome it, but it is there hanging on to us. Christians never claim to be perfect. Okay, if if you hear a Christian who claims to be perfect, I don't want to be too hard, but but they're idiots. Okay, because you can't be perfect. Okay, and no church with good doctrine teaches that you can be perfect in this world. We're just sinful. We can't be perfect. There will be a time when we stand in the presence of the Lord, when all things are cleansed from us. Then we will be. And we should remember, as believers, that we were once non-believers as well. We should always have patience. We should always have compassionate hearts with those who do not believe, with those who have not received Christ as their Lord and Savior yet. Because, as Paul says, I think in the book of Titus, he says, such were some of you. And he goes on this long list of sins. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed and you were cleansed and you were freed from the things of those former life. And that's what we should remember. There are those probably friends that we have, maybe family members, they have not been freed from those things. They are still bound by those chains. We need to have compassion and care for them, but declare to them clearly the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the hope that they will believe and have life. Okay, believe and have life. So let's look at our text here. There are many things that John could have included. Many, many things that were not chosen because they did not fit the purpose of his writing, that we would believe and we would have life. Those two, as I said, are inseparably tied. Remember, John was one of the inner circle 
He was the beloved disciple, the one whom the Lord loved. He was close to our, to our, our Savior. If anybody knew the other things that went on in Jesus' life, it was probably John. Uh, it was probably, uh, he probably had the inside track on all the things that are not listed in any of the Gospels, the things that Jesus did in his downtime. Uh, you know, not that... I don't want to equate this, but, but you know, in our downtime today, did, did, did he play golf or anything like that? Well, no, but if he did, whatever he did, whoever he talked to that John did not include are not germane to his purpose. Okay? Everything he put in here was so that we would believe. And, and the book is not just written to the church, to those who already believe. It is written to those who do not believe. So if you have a friend and, and you want them to know the things of the gospel and they say, yeah, yeah, I've heard all that, well, give them a gospel of John and say, you read this until you figure out who Jesus is and then you come back and talk to me a little bit, okay? Because that's the purpose of the gospel and we have to trust. The gospel is what? It is the power of God unto salvation. Give them the gospel. Let them chew on the gospel. Let the Holy Spirit work in their hearts and in their lives and open their eyes to the truth that is right here in front of them. Charles Spurgeon wrote, First then, dear friends, the objective of all scriptures is to produce faith. There is no text in the whole Bible which was intended to create doubt. Now we might say there are hard texts, there are hard sayings in the scripture, but they are not there in order that we might doubt They are there to challenge us and to drive us to the things of Christ. Doubt is a seed self-sown or sown by the devil, and it usually springs up with more than sufficient abundance without our care. John was a man above all others fitted to write the life of Christ. Did he not know more of Jesus by observation, by intimate fellowship, and by hearty sympathy with him than any of the other evangelists? The Spirit of God, in moving John to write, took such full possession of him that he wrote only that which worked towards the one great objective. No matter how interesting the event, he leaves it unrecorded if he judges it to be aside from his design. If it's written in here, it is to help you believe. That's what it is. John leaves out the Sermon on the Mount. He leaves out the birth narratives. He leaves out many of the healing miracles that are listed in the other three Gospels. He leaves out the calling of the disciples. He leaves out most of the parables, most of the teachings of Jesus on the Christian life, but spends much more time than any of the other gospel writers on the individual encounters Jesus has with people. He spends, chapter 9 is an entire chapter dealing with one person. Okay? He talks about how those lives are changed, and he gives us this narrative of how uh, someone goes from a sinner to a saint. Just like that. John spends all that time on there. If you look at a chart, and you can find these easily enough, I found a lot of them, uh, not just in my office, but online, gospel comparative charts, where you have, here's everything from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. You'll find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John include all of this material, and you'll, Matthew, Mark, and Luke include all of this material, and then you'll see John has these large blanks where he doesn't include any of the things that the other gospel writers write. And then you get to chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 of John, and the other three don't include any of that material, but it's included in John. Why is that? What's the purpose of that? So that we might believe. It was in his mind 
and according to the things of the Holy Spirit, that those things did not need to be included in what he was writing because he was writing for a specific purpose, okay, to a specific audience like the other gospel writers. But he states very clearly, I want you to believe and I want you to have life. I want you to believe and I want you to have life. He also says, when he gets here, verse 30 and 31, you don't need any more. You don't need more miracles. You don't need me to tell you anything else about Jesus Christ. You have it all. This is enough for you to believe. Okay, John, now the context of this, we understand, is that Peter and, and, and John had just come from the empty tomb. They have seen it. Here are the grave cloths. They, they were lying there. Here's the one that wrapped around his face. He was lying there. The tomb is empty. Okay, we don't need any more. This is it. This is enough to believe. Jesus Christ has done what he said he would. He has overcome death. He has destroyed death. He has destroyed Satan. He has given us life. He has given us life. The testimony of the angels of the tomb corroborated this fact. So John was satisfied that even what was contained in his gospel was adequate for a non-believer. A non-believer, therefore, can pick up the gospel of John, having known nothing else about Jesus Christ, and read the gospel of John, and the Holy Spirit can open their eyes, and they can believe. Now, that is true in any passage of Scripture, in any book of Scripture. Uh, Judy and I have a dear friend who became a Christian while studying, studying the minor prophets. Okay? The minor prophets. What do they talk about? Doom and gloom, okay? You know, Amos, just you're all going to die. You're all a bunch of stupid idiots for, for walking away from the Lord. You're going to die. You get to, to any of the other minor prophets. There's only these little bits of hope written out through there. She came to believe in Jesus Christ while studying the minor prophets. That's the power of God. That's the power of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, here in the Gospel of John, we have clear evidence of who Jesus is. You think it would be easier to believe reading the Gospel of John. Okay. So the information, as I said, is not written just for the church. It is written for those who do not believe. Who do not believe. Now, we know how important it is to understand the truth of the Gospel before believing. Not that you have to understand everything contained in the Scripture. You might spend your whole life and still not grasp it all. But we have to understand it in, in, a, in a sense, up here in our head, as well as here in our hearts. The gospel first affects our mind because we hear it. Okay, Just kind of visually think it goes into our ear, into our mind, and then our emotions come into play. The gospel is not understood purely by emotional things. Now, when some of us were younger and perhaps more demonstrable in our emotions or more likely to go to places where uh, emotions were more in tune, you might remember going to a concert or something, and maybe you were one of those people who rushed the stage at the concert, and the concerts were so loud, you couldn't even understand what they were saying, but the music was blaring, and you were clapping, and you were screaming, and you were part of the crowd. You don't know what was going on, but you were all tied up in emotional action. Okay? You couldn't even tell what they were saying. Not that I ever did that, I understand. Okay? But, but the gospel's not like that. It doesn't get you all tied up in emotion without any understanding. It hits your head, then it hits your heart. It requires both. You have to hear. Those who have ears, let them hear. It, does not, it doesn't say those who have a heart, let them feel it. Yes, you will feel 
the change. You will feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, but you will know those things because they are true in the Scripture as well. You will know them. They will be real in your heart. And they will be manifest there. Okay? The gospel is never received, on the other hand, purely rationally. If that was true, then we would see all the brightest people in the world all come to be believers. But it's not. It is received and it is believed. It is manifest through the gift of faith. So it takes both our hearts and our heads to come to Christ. Let let me give you an example of this. Clive Staples Lewis, known simply to his friends as Jack, was a professor of English literature at Oxford University until 1954. Lewis was born in 1898 into an Anglo-Irish family in Belfast, and after what he calls a blandly Christian childhood, he threw himself heart and soul into a rationalist and idealist atheism that he professed and he lived out. Young Jack's intelligence was subtle, his curiosity was boundless, his acumen amazing, his dialectic power exceptional, yet something came into play that shattered his seemingly firm belief in the non-existence of God. For in life there is always something else, something unforeseen, unnoticed, or surprising. And, and this is C.S. Lewis. He writes, You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen. Magdalen was a school. Night after night, feeling whatever my mind lifted, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He had chewed on it and chewed on it in his mind, and he just could not get over it. And the Lord came to him, and, and he finally said, as you said, dejected, you are true. He said, I can, there's no other conclusion, not in my head, not in my heart. There is no other conclusion that God is real. In the middle of his autobiography, Lewis writes, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. But Lewis is no longer an amiable agnostic and no longer speaks cheerfully because after struggling with the intellectual aspects of the arguments for God, he had experienced God's compelling embrace and how awe-inspiring his beauty and joy can be. There were two poles on which Lewis staked his entire life, beauty and its fruit, joy. An unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction, I call it joy which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from happiness and from pleasure. That is Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy. It talks about this this rational pursuit of the non-existence of God, and in that rational pursuit he came to the conclusion both in his heart and both through the work of the Holy Spirit in his mind and his heart that God was real and he was forever changed. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, okay? John is saying here that once you have chewed on the truth of Jesus Christ that is laid out before you and the evidence that is there that he presents about Jesus, it is now time to believe. Now, we go to chapter 11 of Hebrews to talk about belief. A great place to go. This is the hall of faith as we talk about those who were strong in their faith. 
those who have gone before us, who are full of faith, who demonstrated it in great ways. Um, you know, are you ever, I don't know, uh, if, if you're 90 ladies, do you ever think the Lord's going to come upon you and give you a child? I don't think that's going to happen today, okay? Or are you going to be called to go against the 32,000 Midianites with only 300 soldiers? And are you going to put out a fleece and then the Lord's going to answer your prayer? And then are you going to put out another fleece? Because you really weren't sure whether that was true or not. Okay? But these things are listed here. We have Rahab who sells out her entire city, all of her people. Why? Because she knew that those people had the real God with them. That the pagan gods that were being worshipped in Jericho were not real. That the ones out there in the desert... They were worshiping the real God. Let me read a little bit from uh, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. God spoke and it came into existence. You cannot rationally get your mind around that. We work here in Madison County. It is full of scientists. It is full of people who, who test things and repeat things. You cannot repeat creation because the, there was nothing. The Lord spoke. It came into existence. Okay? 